Hey, this is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. Guess what? What? We're going to be at Dev Intersection May 18th through the 21st in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yes, we are. And it's a lineup of a lot of .NET Rocks uh, guests from the past here. Ward Bell's going to be there. Chris Langford's going to be there. Yep. Paul Sheriff. And of course, Scott Guthrie. Brian Noyes. Mm-hmm. All of our friends, folks we know. And uh, it's like two weeks after Build. Yeah, that's a great time to have a conference. Absolutely. All the build keynotes are coming. So yep. we're going to be able to see all the latest bits, everything that just came out of build a couple of weeks later, uh, hopefully with some more detail in it. So it's going to be really interesting to see what we actually get at the Scottsdale Princess. Mark Miller's going to be there. Yes, he is <laughs> doing a little biology of UI, which I think is very cool. I've been over at his house watching him develop this course. And man, is it amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, I believe I'll be doing the Xamarin Forms workshop, will I not? You will indeed. And of course, we close the show every time with the 64-bit question. 64-bit question, the game show you've never seen before, and you'll wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why not. So if you'd like to join us, come out, out to Scottsdale, uh, go to devintersection.com and register right away. And if you register for a workshop as well, you get your choice of an Xbox One or a tablet. There's a bunch of different gadgets you get. Do a conference attendance and a workshop. Yeah. All right. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1120, with guest Danielle Cooley. Recorded Friday, March 20th, 2015. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're at the Nebraska Code Camp. Uh, Danielle Cooley is here. We're going to have a great talk with her in just a few minutes, but uh, first... My friend, sure. you just gave a talk? I did. I did my uh, Essence of DevOps talk. Essence of DevOps. The, the, yeah, yeah, Essence of... Just Isn't that of, a perfume? Just, yeah. What does it smell like? The sweat of fear? I don't know. <laughs> something like that. Uh, it was a full room, and folks were pretty engaged on it. You know, it's just yeah. thinking through, why are you going to do this? What is it really going to get you? Where should you focus? Did containers come up at all? That's a hot mm, yeah, topic. Yeah, it's, it's hot right now. I do mention virtualization, but yeah. you know, I call it people process tools for a reason. Right. Because you really process first. Start on culture first. Yeah. That's, that's great stuff. And we've talked about it many times. Yeah, yeah. And it's a regular topic on, over, uh, on both the shows, really, on yeah. the IT, on the Run As, Run as, as, well as Radio. Dot com. Yeah. So what's going on over at Run As lately? Who are you talking to? I think the current show is uh, an exchange update, just talking about, well, really the conversation uh, about how... It got cold in here all of a uh, sudden. Yeah, it's very scary. Just how the cloud informs an awful lot of on-prem stuff these days. Yeah. Exchange has changed substantially because of the of Microsoft operating as part of Office 365. Yeah. Exchange in the cloud? Yeah, and uh, and really how how evil attachments are and how we're, that methodology is changing. You know, email works great. Attachments shouldn't be evil. Yeah, well, shouldn't. there's no. lots of problems with them. Well, of course. Yeah. I just want them to go through. Yeah. That's all we ever want. It's all you ever want. But yeah. you prefer to have only the latest version and don't have to worry about the previous ones. Like there's a lot of stuff in, in an enterprise where you end up with terabytes of email, mostly copies of the same thing over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah, right. All right, well, let's roll the crazy music for a little segment we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what's up? What I got. Mohippa. Mohippa than what you got. Uh, what I got today is a little Visual Studio 2013 tip oh. about Code Lens. Love me some Code Lens. Love me some Code Lens. Unfortunately, it's at the top echelon of 
Visual Studio. So Only for the Ultimates. Yeah, for the Ultimates. Right now, anyway, I hear that might be changing. Ah, we can hear to hoping, dude. Yeah, that might be changing. So Code Lens is a wonderful little tool that shows you right above any method uh, all sorts of little things about it. How many references there are to it, which I find invaluable. Yep. Because if there's no references to a method, why is it there? Why is it there? Why is it there? Nobody's calling it. <laughs> it's, it's that lonely method. And we know even if a method is not called, it still exists because it's eating up space. It's like a geek on a Friday night. Nobody's <laughs> calling. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So, uh, but one of the cool things about CodeLens that you might not know is that you can pop out, just click on this little icon and pop it out to its own window. Oh, really? Yes, I did not know that. Why so would if you do that? You, uh, well, you may not want your code cluttered up with meta information. Which, right. Because it gets itself right in there at the code. It adds a line of space wow. to every method. So mm -hmm. instead, you just, when you're in the method, you see the window changes and, you know, there, there you see everything that you would see above the method, but now it's in its own window. Nice. So if you've got great big monitors and you can undock that window and pull it off to the side, Go Do for it. it. Some people like that. But I didn't know it was there. It's one of those hidden gems. And that's a great gem. I mean, you know me. I have a huge screen setup. Yeah. So it'd be great to be able to pull that away. Yeah. And how many little icon gems are there in Visual Studio that nobody knows about? I think hundreds. Hundreds. I really do think so. Yeah. This great is find, one of them. dude. I love it. So there you go. Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 974. And that's the one we did with uh, Tim Thomas. Remember Tim Thomas? I do. The designer out of Austin? Yeah. We talked about holistic Fantastic. design with him. And one of the topics that came up big time was uh, skeuomorphism. And Los Manos wrote a comment. He said, skeuomorphism or not? Is the diskette icon, you know the icon is like an old yeah. three and a half inch yeah. poppy that what nobody knows. What the heck is that? that? Right. Is the diskette icon actually a good indicator of saving something? Yeah. Well, no, it doesn't anymore, really. I say we use the mobile phone icon for saving stuff as we use the mobile phone for everything. But it could therefore be an icon for anything. That's the fun part, right? Because then it's easier to design. You only have one icon to draw on everything with. Which <laughs> is lighter on bandwidth. You only have to transfer it once. And uh, it's easier on support calls, too. Just press the button with the mobile phone icon on it. <laughs> it's so freaking hilarious. I had to read it. It's just, but that's, that's the comment, dude. That's <laughs> like, it's just too funny. It's funny. <laughs> All right, you earned yourself a mug, dude. Unlike the guy below who says, when do I get a mug? You actually came up with the one that cracked me you up. made us laugh. You got get Carl laughing, too. So, Los Vados, thank you so much for a comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps, as we've got them for Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our guest, Danielle Cooley, has over 14 years of experience and a multitude of user experience research and design techniques applied to a wide variety of applications, including hardware, Windows, web, telephone, and mobile. Her work has benefited large and small public and private companies in many industries ranging from pharmaceuticals to car rental to financial services. Now working as an independent consultant, Danielle is a frequent speaker at local, national, and international conferences. She has a BE in biomedical and electrical engineering from Vanderbilt University and an MS in human factors and information design from the Elkin B. McCallum Graduate School of Business at Bentley University. You can find Danielle online at dgcooley.com. That's C-O-O-L-E-Y.com. And she tweets at dgcooley. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. You have the most 
thorough set of skills I would ever hope for in a UX person. Yes. Oh my goodness. Thank you. That's really, I mean, an EE, so obviously you're intelligent. I've never met an EE that wasn't stunning. We try. And then on top of that, all of these learnings around, I mean, you were set up to do industrial design. Like, how did you end up in software? What went wrong? <laughs> you certainly qualified to comment on that icon thing. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, what I tell people is that biomedical engineering, which was my other major, mm-hmm. is about bridging the gap between people and technology. Right. Whether that is between an amputated limb and a prosthetic device or a cardiovascular signal, for example, and an EKG machine, uh, or between a human brain and the software that that brain right, is perceiving yeah. and the using. Mouse. It's yes. biotech, really. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's it's an extension of that. All, all of the yeah. same thing. Mm-hmm. And, it, and there's so many directions. You mean you could go around the whole RSI issue about making good keyboards and, mm-hmm. and better resolution screens. That that's, There's all those dynamics. But you got in, did you really end up in web design? I did. Well, you know, I chose intentionally to go into digital right. because it's easier to change things. If you are designing a stove, for example, right. and you decide that this control layout doesn't work, well, you have to go through all the materials mm. and, you know, the manufacturing process and all this stuff. And it might take six months or sure. a year or two years to yeah. change. you got to sell the, all the ones you've already made. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and if you're doing it digitally, you change one line of code and all of a sudden you your button has a label that people understand. Yeah. So. Save. Yeah. That was the <laughs> exactly safe. But you also get that A-B testing effect where you keep trying. It's not enough that it's better. Yeah. You can better iterate again and much better more again. quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you one of these people that looks at things in everyday life and says, oh, oh that's It's a very shit. hard. Once yeah. you start seeing them, you can't unsee them. Yeah, yeah, Billy Hollis ruined that for me. I used to not mind elevators at all. Then he showed me everything was wrong with an elevator. Now every elevator's wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. But even... And I brought this up, too. Even things as simple as the placement of a paper towel dispenser in a public bathroom. Absolutely. Why is it over the toilet? Because now you're dripping your wet hands on the toilet seat for the next person. Yeah, or less yeah. severely, just traffic flow, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, how you're getting in and out of the restroom, yeah. particularly crowded ones. Yeah. I find the e-commerce folks take user design as the comprehensive view, the whole pipeline of how you make a sale and so forth, a lot more seriously than most other websites because they could they could track it to money. Indeed. Uh, I'm not sure I would limit it to e-commerce. Um, I see a lot of interest in like financial services, uh-huh. that industry. Uh, certainly they are selling things, they're opening accounts, sure. they're, you're buying or trading stocks. Well, and if you make that too painful, they have to make a phone call I mean, or come into the branch. All of that costs money to the bank. Exactly, right. exactly. People with really high customer support volume mm-hmm. are also seeing a lot of value. Very sensitive yeah. to how do we make this more likely to be used. Mm-hmm. Is it just utilization? Does time matter in that? Or? Time matters depending on your audience. Mm-hmm. So uh, getting it right always matters. Getting it right quickly matters more in, say, a call center environment sure. where every second can be tied to thousands of dollars. Right. Um, so is your job typically you come in, you look at their existing website, you say, all right, this is my suggestion. These are my suggestions for how to make this easier to navigate, how to make it better and easier for everybody. Ideally, my job is to come in and understand the business goals and then to start understanding who the user base is Mm -hmm. and then to uh, iterate 
on, understand the problem, talk to those end users, understand what their problems are and mm -hmm. how that's preventing the business from reaching their goals. Yeah. And then to iterate on the design to solve those problems so that the business can. Are you just as concerned with user psychology as you are with design? Absolutely. That is my primary focus. I'm not actually a graphic designer of right. all my comprehensive list of skills. Mm -hmm. uh, graphic design is not one of them. But understanding the design psychology, why we put things in the order we put them in, why we label things the way we label them, yeah. uh, why, why we maybe apply some visual treatment right. that's different from another one. But it really is about understanding the way the user's mind works and making sure we build software that works that way instead of the other way around. I've, I've taken some of the lessons I've learned from books like The Paradox of Choice, mm -hmm. which you probably have read also, mm -hmm. and, and seen real results in, you know, you put six items on the front page of a, of a website for sale, your sales drop. You put three, your sales go up. You know, just simple things like that. I, I find easy to understand and absolutely spot on in practice. I've seen it. Indeed. Yeah. So when you're digging into uh, somebody's site like this, how do they know they need you? Like, what are they coming to you with a problem? Do they think they're not selling enough? or they're Sometimes it's that they think they're not selling enough. Sometimes they've seen a high volume of complaints in a certain right. area. Sometimes it's, we haven't touched this in 10 years. Let's make sure we do it right yeah. when we do Before redesign we get going. it. Yeah. I mean, you got to think about how annoyed customers actually have to be to file complaints. Mm -hmm. like I, I've always gone with the whole, for every one that actually complains, there's 11 that didn't. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I, I find interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you get into metrics around that? Like, do you Hopefully. know you're making things better? Hopefully. Now, certainly if you're starting from scratch, you don't know how an app that was designed with a user-centered approach mm compares better than one that was designed without right. because it's not apples to apples, yeah, yeah. right? Usually you can see... Um, marked improvements in uh, key performance indicators mm -hmm. uh, when you change an existing site. And right. there, there are plenty of fascinating ROI stories about that, how uh, there's one about the $300 million button right. that you may have heard about. Wait, uh, that rings a bell. Did we talk about that on the show? What do we that? ever have? What is you, it? You tell a story. There, you tell a well, story. Well, there, there was a uh, company who the consulting company who did this work has declined to name but okay. this company was seeing drop-offs in their purchase process, and it was e-commerce. And they said, we want to understand these drop-offs. Mm -hmm. So they ended up actually establishing the analytics, which weren't there in the first place. It's been mm -hmm. a while. Mm -hmm. And then looking at them and saying, well, you're seeing drop-offs on this page. And then they looked at that page and said, oh, you're making everyone register for your site when they are trying to buy something. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when you're trying to buy something... The business wants you to register because right. they want your information. They want to capture, you know, data about you and measure how much you buy over what period right. of time. But you as the end user don't care about those things. You just want to buy your thing right. and right. move on. And so uh, that option wasn't available and people said, forget it. I'm going to go buy my thing from someone else. I'm going to walk away. Well, yeah, isn't they, that Radio Shack's whole shtick now that they're gone? It's like you go in to buy batteries and they want your phone number. And it's like zip code. It was yeah. bad in the 80s, but they, they stopped. Yeah, they I were hope. like, can I have your zip code or like, social security no. number or whatever? No. <laughs> no, you may not. They're batteries. Mm -hmm. I That's can go right. get them somewhere else if you like. Exactly. Yeah. So people were doing that. Right. And instead they said, uh, provide this option to check out as a guest. Right. Yep. One button, check out as guest. $300 million revenue increase in wow. one year. Wow. Yeah. 
That's a good button. It's a good button. <laughs> good button. Yeah. <laughs> but it isn't interesting that you have to go through the workflow and really look at where, you you, where, where things are going and then instrument everybody going through it. Because, of course, all of the employees, anybody building that site would have just filled the stuff in that wouldn't even blink. Right. You, know? right. you lose perspective, just like anything else. Sure. If you're, you're working not on it all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So instrumentation, sort of capture the flow and then start looking at how to make changes to it. Is, mm -hmm. it, is it. is the correct answer always shorter and faster? No. Really? No, it's not. Um, one example would be TurboTax. Okay. Uh, something that you are not expert with. No. Probably mm -hmm. yeah, most people. Yeah, you use it once a year kind of thing. tax preparer, right? You, you do it once a year. We call those types of people repeat novices. Right. And maybe you've nice. done it every year for the last 10 years, but... But you've yeah. got to upgrade every year. So every year it's a new app. It's, it's new. Tax <laughs> laws change. And you're never going to get good at something you only do once a year. Right. You're never going to get never going to stop making you cry. You <laughs> could just... That could very easily be sort of a spreadsheet interface, right? Sure, right. And you, just, you fill in all your data. But that's not the best way to minimize errors mm -hmm. in that particular process. Yeah. And this is one you want to be error-free. Sure. Correct? There are consequences mm -hmm. if you're wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's one faster is not better. Right. And fewer clicks is not necessarily better. You want to make sure every every piece of data entered has the right context around it and that it's very clear what you're supposed to enter there. I love that concept of a repeat novice. Software you use so infrequently, you're never going to be good at it. So there's no reason for an expert mode. I had an experience with TurboTax in 1995 or 6, I think it was. And uh, my wife at the time took over for me. You know, we were doing the books together. And then she got to this screen that wouldn't let her advance until she fin picked one of op the options on the screen. And the, there wasn't the option that was appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. But you had to pick one. And she was literally in tears because this thing wouldn't, you know. It, it, and how easy would it have been for the programmers to say, you know, I'll do this later, a button, and move on. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. or, or just none of the above or something, you know. Yeah. I, do, I do recall that with fondness. And I think that was the next year we started going to H&R Block. <laughs> That's an interesting thought, though, just around this idea of not enforcing an unnecessary order. Mm -hmm. you know, but now you introduce some complexity, too. You do. Yeah, I, think there's a, I don't know where you stand on this whole thing of how do I make it simple enough that it, people actually finish it, but sophisticated enough that it does what people need it to do. Well, what I said it this morning in my talk, actually, mm -hmm. there is a burden of getting information from a user's head or documents mm -hmm. into your computer system, whatever mm -hmm. it is. And that burden can be on the user or it can be on the development team or it can be split in any number of gray areas in between, right? So right. every, um, say, parsing out dashes in a phone number, for example, mm -hmm. you could just put a form field and leave that all on the end user to figure out Iteratively, oh, that's not the right phone number format. Yeah, oh, that isn't either. How many phone fields right. have I done that with? Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, on the other hand, you could put little helper text after. Say, oh, you're supposed to put dashes in, not parentheses. Right. And then on the other end, the developer can take on that burden and say, okay, I'm going to parse out any parentheses or dashes and just get your 10 digits and figure out what they're supposed to be and on my format it correctly right. after that. Exactly. What a weird idea. Just take what I give you and <laughs> figure it out. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. But how many telephone number fields do you see with helper text after them. Lots. Should really not be there anymore. Yeah, it's unnecessary. 
Why am I typing anything out of the numbers and you'll just lay it out? But you know, me. user input is evil. So the more we can do to help them get it right, the better, I suppose. But you know, where does where do you draw the line? You want it them is to give tough, you, right? Yeah. And then then there is the okay that takes more development time, right? And it, you know, that's just one example, but it scales up to the whole system, right? right. Mm -hmm. Well, I've seen you know I've seen sites where they if they ask you for the postcode first, so they can fill in the city and state for you mm -hmm. automatically, mm -hmm. which is fine right up until it doesn't work, right? right. Uh, and it is confusing because no one expects it's to in the wrong order. Zip code's right. supposed to come last, mm -hmm. so you get them, you confuse them, and then sometimes you literally drive the guy off. He doesn't yes. know his zip code or doesn't have a zip code or you, when he pulls up his zip code, you don't know what it is he's got. Mm -hmm. That's not a good outcome either. Mm -hmm. yep. There are four key benefits to taking a user-centered approach. Mm -hmm. One is straight up more sales. Yep. Right? If you have a consumer product, you're going to sell more stuff if you make it easy for people to put stuff in their cart and p give you money for that stuff. Right. Right? Uh, the other one is increased word of mouth marketing. Mm -hmm. So if it was easy for me to do that, I'm going to tell my friends how easy that was to right. do. Uh, it's easier now than ever to do that on Twitter and other social media. have all these media. mechanisms to spread good words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The third way is reduction, help desk volume. Yep. As you don't want to do that. And so even if you don't really have a lot of competitors... You don't want people calling your help desk no. to, to ask those things. And the fourth is for internal tools, enterprise applications that are being used by employees of a company. Right. So they don't have that choice, right? They can't go somewhere they else to, to find that out. Mm -hmm. But you're paying them to spend time doing that stuff. Right. If I need to call maintenance because the toilet's overflowing in my office building, you don't want me to pay me to spend 10 minutes on the intranet trying to find that phone number, right? right? You want me to pay me for those 10 minutes to do my job that adds value to the company. Yeah. So mm -hmm. those are the ways you mm -hmm. see benefits. But is, and isn't that just basically applicable to any app at all? Is, absolutely. You know, get, every app should be user-centric. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yes. I guess the, other qu the corollary to that is, is there a case where you wouldn't want to? Well, some people talk about APIs. Right. And uh, But then it's just... That's your user, right? Mm -hmm. Your user is another computer, and you do need to take that into account. But yeah. that's not a human-centered approach, of course. No, not at all. Although there is a developer who has to understand that API well enough to write the code in the first place. Yep. If you make it too hard, and I've met a few APIs like that, people just won't use it. Exactly. Right? They'll, they'll do something else. They'll find another way. Mm -hmm. I guess that's ultimately the outcome of all of these things is you know, you're actually going to get people that want to use your app or, or, other, or otherwise you know, make it more expensive for you in the long run. Right. And sometimes people will opt for paper or something instead. Right. <laughs> we don't have any digital competitors. Well, <laughs> they were doing it some way before now. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's another, another way to go about it. Uh, how important are sort of the new UI standards in the web space? These, some of the new tags, do you deal with any of that? Is that important to you? I don't deal with that so much directly. Mm -hmm. I think proper markup is really important. It's the easiest way to make sure your site works for everyone. Right. Uh, it's a key component in accessibility. Whenever you have someone using assistive technology yeah. to access a site, having proper markup is a huge first step in that assistive technology being able to do its job so that the human at the other end of that can do their job. It does seem relatively rare that we're putting a lot of dev cycles into accessibility. So is it sort of, if you just stick with the standards and you don't have to do much, a lot of that will come for free? Most people are not legally required to do it. Right. And therefore they do not because it does cost more money. Right. Uh, now there, we have an aging population. Mm -hmm. So um, the numbers of people who are needing 
at the very least, larger fonts right. yeah. is going to go up and up and up. The people using assistive technologies are going to go up. And say that's 10% of your customer base. Mm -hmm. Is that revenue that you want to lose? Yeah, for sure. And you can certainly make your product accessible for far less than 10% of your customer base's mm -hmm. revenue. Yeah. But clearly, there are easy ways to get to accessibility in hard ways. There are levels of accessibility. I mean, there, there's low-hanging fruit, yeah. I would say, in every area. I think more and more, it's becoming, if not legally required, um, it's becoming more common, I guess, more acceptable. More There's there's legal risk in terms of civil lawsuit right. rather than government regulation. Yeah, that's, that seems to be an, a U.S.-centric thing, too. I, mean, I also run into apps that just are so U.S.-centric that trying to use them in another country is very difficult. Yes. Well, it, 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 actually, I'm almost saying onto a different topic here because it's mm -hmm. not necessarily about accessibility either. You know, the, the idea of building software that's tolerant, not only variations in given sets of skills or you know, eyesight, but just tolerant to other cultures and languages. Absolutely. It's critically important if you have a global application mm -hmm. to uh, do your iterative prototyping and testing in all of your target markets, or at least, you know, some key representative target markets. I worked on a project recently where we did studies in five countries, right? you know, in Europe and Asia, uh, North America, South America, and um, actually Mexico, too, in North America. Yeah. So. Did you get into stuff that's even more, cult not, not just the language itself, but, you know, you get into real cultural things about terminology or approaches to things that are, you know, the they, cultures can get really interesting in that space. Uh, we did a little bit. It was more around our protocol, mm -hmm. actually, where it was for a credit card company right. and mm. some cultures, you know, yes, we tell you all about all of our money and our mm -hmm. finances and yeah. others are very much like, no, we never ever talk about those things. So it was more what was okay to ask or not okay to right. ask about. Yeah, what's what's considered offensive. Exactly. Different places that mm -hmm. offensive is something that sneaks up on you. Yes. And then you realize you've done yes. it. And again, you get, I think you get into a very, it's very easy to get in software into a US-centric mindset around a lot of the stuff that, that offends and annoys. Mm -hmm. so it's easy to get lost in there. Yes. Uh, I'm always surprised at how hard it is to build multilingual apps. Very hard. It's just amazing how difficult that is. Mm -hmm. and, it, and especially, I mean, I'm, you know, we tend to just think about Western Europe. Mm -hmm. like just, just make it work in German and French and Italian and Spanish. But then you get to somebody, you get to a language that reads right to left, mm -hmm. uh, Hebrew or Arabic, mm -hmm. and help, heaven help me for the Oriental languages. Yeah. They're even more challenging, but right. it's just not a simple way to build software. No, it's very challenging. And, and I, I'm not sure how different companies come up with solutions for that. I think, you know, there may be sometimes completely different platforms yeah. for different language so I know types. It, I know it probably runs the gamut, but what percentage of the prescribed fixes would you say are low-hanging fruit versus which ones would be total rewrite, you know, on the, I would on the spectrum The prescribed fixes that are actually implemented are yeah. low-hanging fruit. Uh, often, More of them? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, people, if, if they're asking for your opinion, largely they will, they'll do the low-hanging fruit yeah. piece of it. Um, the larger things, that's why it's so important to t start 
early. Mm. It's talking to your end users, bringing them in, watching them use your system. Mm -hmm. Even if you're at a very early stage prototype, you can watch someone use, quote unquote, a sketch of what your system might look like. Right. right? And uh, the sooner you do that, the easier it is to get those big picture problems solved from the the start. Um, You know, uh, the last time I had a big picture problem for a client, they didn't bring me in until they were beta testing. Wow. And, well, guess what? Their whole platform was built on this concept that people lived in a quote-unquote community, which was a geographical region, but they were adjacent to one another. So it was very difficult for some of the users to understand which community they lived in. Oh. And so I said, you kind of have to trash this whole community thing. And right. they said, well... That's really the backbone of the whole deal, and we would have to yeah. start over, and we've already spent 95% of our design development budget, uh, so we can't do that. Yeah, we're going to um, do this now. Exactly. We're but we could have found that out with pencil and paper yep. a year before that. Yeah, right. yeah. Just exercising the design and seeing what metaphors mm-hmm. make sense. Those must be hard, you know, ish situations to, to work through. Or to tell people that. Yeah, yeah, just to, right, and, you know... I'm sorry, but this really sucks. Your yeah. baby is very ugly, <laughs> and no amount of cosmetic surgery can yeah. fix it. Yeah. You know, it, if it's not a design problem, there's not a design solution. Right? Right. So I can't take that community model, for example, and say, we'll just bring a graphic designer in, and they'll make it gorgeous, and they will make it gorgeous, but yeah. the concept is still flawed. Yeah, not actually fixing the real do, issue. Do you have a top 10 don'ts? <sighs> <laughs> or anything say, like that. One of my colleagues would be uh, angry at me if I didn't ever said, don't use the hamburger menu. Don't oh, use the hamburger, hamburger menu. Hamburger I thought menu. that was the hot thing The hamburger days. menu is is not good. And it's, we still have a chance to it. stop it in its tracks. And um, it has tested over and over again poorly. People yeah. don't understand what it is. They Consumers don't, right. don't understand what it is. Well, designers and developers see it all the time because we live on our mobile devices yeah. and uh, we just see it. We know what it is. Right. Um, but consumers don't. Right. They don't recognize it as an icon. They, 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 they know don't know there. what it is. And I mean, there's nothing inherent about it that means menu, right? right? It's actually a list icon. And uh, there, the, what has tested better, actually, is just the word menu. Menu. Yeah. In a little box, right. which yep. does not take up any more room. Nope. So if you have to hide things, which is also the thing you should do at the very last point when you're absolutely out of space, you know, hide selectively as your screen gets smaller and smaller. Right. Uh, but then uh, trash the hamburger Try icon. So what if, menu. Yeah. what if all your customers are developers? I guess you probably all don't have to worry about All your customers are it. developers, then you can <laughs> probably just like put an asterisk there or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Is, but. Well, you Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to add a don't charge me $100 for using this site checkbox to the Music to Code by Shopping Cart website. <laughs> Do you have that? <laughs> I would think not. <laughs> I would hope not. Don't charge me $100. Yeah. Means you have been charging me $100. Right. Funny. Listen, check this box. It's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Telerik Next. This is the first annual global developer and customer conference from Telerik, held at the prestigious Hyatt Boston Harbor Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts on May 4th and 5th. Telerik invites you to come and join with developers from around the world to learn about modern application development and Telerik tools for best practices. From web to mobile to desktop, no platform will be left behind. 
Register today at TellericNext.com to reserve your conference pass plus the attendee party at the Science Center and a special keynote from Mythbusters host Grant Imahara. Use promo code NETROCKS for $50 off. May the fourth be with you, and we'll see you at Telerik next. Nice. So who's our winner, dude? Today's winner is Ashok Rout. Congratulations, Ashok. Golf clap for you, sir. Hope I pronounced your last name correctly there, Ashok. And uh, a Telerik DevCraft collection is on its way to you. That's a big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. Right. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we like to give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. We've but done it three times now. But you got to join to win. That's right. And we also like to ask our guests, if you had, uh, Danielle, uh, $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? That's a great question. Hmm. I... I don't. I couldn't think of a single five thousand dollar thing, like a big thing. Right. I would probably. I would upgrade my laptop. Yep. Yeah. Um, not sure about the new MacBooks. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess with five thousand dollars, I could get new adapters for all the for the new USB one. One of those and something else, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I'd upgrade my phone. I'd probably um, buy that Atari flashback oh, gaming right. console. Yeah. Okay. All the yeah. old Atari games. Yeah. Yeah, very good. That's Atari maybe flashback. go upgrade the the home PC. What is the Atari flashback? It's is it what it sounds like? It is an it's Atari. Like yeah, an old school, mm -hmm. but in a handheld form. No, right? you have it has joysticks. Oh, okay. and everything. So, oh, you're talking about the stand up console. Yeah, like you plug it into a television, right? And it doesn't have gaming cartridges like the old Atari. Right. I think the games it's just are like built everything's in. on it. But it, you do use but all the, the old original. Games. Yes, yeah. it's the old games, eight bit. You know, Great. and you use the joystick too. <laughs> That's awesome. Are game. you a fan of Mame, multi arcade machine emulator? N no, I'm not. Oh, you are now. Go yeah. check it out, Mame, and they have the ROMs from all the old arcade That's games, funny. and you can play them on a PC. We've been playing in television at home with the mm. flashback. Oh, okay, yeah, because yeah, I can't imagine you still have an Intellivision functioning. That's a 20-year-old uh, I do have device. a functioning Intellivision. Is it still alive? Yes. Oh, wow. It was the last time we plugged it in anyway. But, <laughs> but now we have the flashback one, which is the one we actually use. And that was such the classic 8-bit characters, right? Like mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a hockey game for the Intellivision where if you hit the guy just right, he'd go over the boards. And oh. it was just a set of pixels. I have an unintellivision. That's what I have yeah, in my it's house. It's just not that intelligent. No. No. They got a knob on it that says brightness, but it don't work. <laughs> 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 Thanks for that joke, Gallagher. It's an oldie, but a goodie. Yeah. He's got his own things going on. So, uh, I mean, I'm enjoying thinking about UI a little more broadly here. But, uh, you know... What are the sort of specific items that you tend to dig into? You know, where are people making their mistakes most of the time? Besides the hamburger menu. Besides, so yeah, on the micro level, the hamburger menu. On the macro level, not talking to their end users right. ever. Just having them part of the equation. Can I, I mean, focus groups are expensive and I feel sort of artificial. Like as long as somebody knows they're being watched... I think it affects their behavior. It does. And, you know, Heisenberg told us that. If you yeah, watch Particle, yeah. it behaves differently, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. My nerd out. Um, but it, it's not so much for digital product design. Focus groups are good at having people tell you what they think they want. Right. Or what they think they do. 
but what people say they do and what they actually do not are not thing. at all the same yep. thing. That's so right. if you want to understand if it's easy for someone to add a sweater to their shopping cart and buy it, you need to watch them try to do right. that mm-hmm. and see. Preferably unobserved. Uh, no, unfortunately, ethics don't really allow yeah. us to do that. Um, I suppose there could be some system set up where you could get permission ahead of time to randomly monitor someone's internet use. But well, I don't I, think you're and I kind of like that. the heat map tools and things like that that allow you to tracking. instrument the website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The eye tracking tools are really helpful, but again, the people do know they're being observed. Right. That would just yeah. be an ethical violation on a very large scale to watch people yeah. without. Well, and it's I don't it's like I don't want their personal information i just want to know the the overall the aggregate of what people are doing where Mm -hmm. are they hanging around on the page what pieces are actually being used like what's important what's taking up their time and you want to know that but you also want to know the why right which is why it's important to do it uh, in addition to getting all that large end data right you want to do one-on-one activities where you're watching them do it and listening to them talk about it and tell you oh well i really want uh, to buy a new car, and the site's asking me for my zip code, but I don't care where the car is. You know, right. I'll fly across the country and drive back yeah. if it's the right car. And I'm afraid when I enter my zip code, you're going to filter down my data set on me, and I only see what's local. Right, but all I know, if I don't ask them that, all I know is we're losing people on zip code. Right. And I don't yeah. know why. And they never tell you when they go away. They just go away. Right. right. Well, they can't tell you, right? Are there, are there companies out there that have people that do this? for you? Like uh, uh, hordes of people that will come to your website and test it out for you and maybe let you record their screen and and show that data to you? Absolutely. There are um, specific panel providers Mm -hmm. who have... we pay people, you know, for their time when they yeah. do that, or reimburse them for their time. Sometimes it's a, a gift card to the store in question. Sometimes right. it's just, you know, a $25 Visa gift card, depending on the time that's involved. So that's a job. Uh, well, uh, I doubt you could really make a living off of it. But, yeah, you yeah. could make some, some good play money. Yeah, right. sort of a part-time side thing. But you still have this issue of they've told you what they think. You know, it's like as soon as I ask you for a reason why you did something, you're going to come up with a reason, mm-hmm. not just I, I didn't know what else to do. I was just hanging out. It's a more nuanced skill than just mm-hmm. saying why did you do that, right? right. It's, it's uh, I noticed you added the blue sweater and not the red sweater, mm-hmm. you know, or... You know, when we talked earlier, you said you were interested in sweaters and you instead added a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. You know, tell me. Or they'll just say, hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. My favorite moderating skill is, is for me to say, tell me more about hmm. <laughs> because they're not really verbalizing their thoughts, <laughs> right? You but you know hmm. something's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you, you're watching them and their face gets squinched up. You, know, right. you can tell there's evidence of perplexion. Is that yeah. a word? What's and going on here? Yeah. yeah. Does that that uncertainty versus delight. Tell me more about what this is, right? Yeah. Or or yeah. you ask about the delight as well, right? Tell me yeah. tell me about why you're smiling right now. And yeah. um, so yes, there are panel providers who give you access to people who are willing to do that for you. Hmm. Uh, sometimes of course your consumer base is not really end consumers, right? It's right. we're developing an app for cardiologists. Yeah. yeah. Those people are a little bit harder to pin down sometimes, but you definitely want to use people who would use your system in real life. Yeah, levels of education and and technical savviness and so forth. Mm -hmm. Definitely, I mean, being developers, you just know stuff you don't even know you know Mm -hmm. and and can make a bunch of jump assumptions that that the average consumer doesn't get. And that's true for any subject matter expert. You know, if you're doing something for lawyers and the lawyers don't know what to tell you about yeah. thing that's missing there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What's actually hard in that space. 
you know, they just walk past it because everybody knows that. They mm-hmm. don't think twice about it. Yep. What are some other things that uh, common mistakes people make? Common mistakes people make. Uh, I, th- assuming they are the user. If it works for me, it'll work for them. Right. Um, sometimes the mistake is not considering context of use. Mm-hmm. So what works on my mobile phone at my desk in my office does not work at my mo- on my mobile phone. Walking uh, down the street. Walking down the street. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, I'm an aircraft mechanic trying to pull up a part number on my tablet. Yeah. And I'm, by the way, outdoors, and it's sunny, and it's noisy, and I'm wearing earplugs. So that audio cue you very helpfully plugged into your application is not even noticed yeah, by you me. Can't even right? be told yeah. it's there. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the best way to understand that and to get that right, of course, is to observe users in context to go out into the field. Well, and I think this that. problem gets way harder with mobile apps because they're using it one-handed while walking on a sidewalk yeah. in a noisy space in bright sunlight. Mm-hmm. Like there's all these variations on the theme that mm-hmm. stuff. Used to be we could count on the desktop machine stayed on the desk. Yes. Under fairly cold, controlled conditions. Mm-hmm. You can't. And what about allowing people to resize? You know, can you disallow? Is this something you can turn off so that they don't accidentally size and move the page out of the... I would advise against turning that off for accessibility reasons. Yeah. Right. Because people, some people have visual impairments that yeah. those larger sizes can help with. Oh, there's another thing that drives me crazy, which is a text window within that's the full size of the screen so you're scrolling down and then once you get to the text you're just scrolling the text and you can't move any farther that's tough yes yeah so give yourself enough size uh, margin on each side yeah no, that you got something to grab yeah yeah the whole responsive web design where we're trying to make pages that work for all these different sizes but still have just one page one code base mm-hmm. yeah which just seems remarkably difficult to do well it is it is remarkably difficult to do mm-hmm. well, yes. And it's really sort of, you, you go in for three sizes, like a phone size, tablet size, desktop size, big screen size? Roughly, but because there are so many different devices, I mean, I'm sitting here with an iPhone 5, right. iPhone 6 is different size, iPhone 6 Plus is a different size. Yep. I mean, that's just three, three iterations right of there. a single product, right. right? And you're already at three different widths. Now mm-hmm. throw in all of your Android devices and then iPad mini, you know, you're, it's just a spectrum now. It's right. not discrete sizes. So I think responsive is really the only way to go forward right. in that environment. It's they're only going to be more sizes. So, and then it's tolerant within ranges. But isn't this again gets back to what are you doing at the time? What's the context around that? Yeah, exactly. Is the responsive way design works on an iPhone? Does it work on an iPhone outside on the street? Exactly, exactly. And sometimes you're working on an enterprise tool that is strictly desktop only. Right. You know exactly what it is. You know, it's it's an interface for an ultrasound device that mm-hmm. is physically attached to a wand, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, often, um, surprisingly enough, there you have, you know exactly what the screen size is going to be and the right. context of use. Uh, now, if you're just developing a mobile banking app for a consumer, that's not something you can assume at all. Yeah. Is pricing part of your strategy and part of your expertise? How pricing to price is not part of my expertise. That's very interesting. A colleague of mine was just asked a couple of days ago to price, to provide pricing information on their product. Oh, um, really? Yes. It falls under the category of psychology, I think, as much as it does finance. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, pricing is very tricky, and I would say there are people who specialize solely yeah. in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to t- I imagine there's got to be some sort of user-centered approach to it to understand mm-hmm. what people will and won't tolerate or just sort of, hey, we price it high and then, you know, keep going down until we, you know, hit the spot where right, we want right. it. 
to be. Or keep going up until people buy it. You know, there's reasons. Until people stop buying it. Yeah, yeah. stop buying it if it's too cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, rule, the retail rule I've always heard is if 20% of your customers aren't turning it down for price, you're too cheap. So it's like you actually want a certain amount of routine, one in five, nope, that's too expensive. Mm-hmm. If you have none, you're clearly too cheap. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there are plenty of companies like, you know, they're, the dollar store wars last year right. were huge, right? I mean, <laughs> there are circumstances where you want to just be the cheapest one because yeah, people that, need that a lot asset. of that thing. Yeah. Is it is it weird to have, and I've never seen this, but is it weird to have a sorry too rich for my blood button <laughs> on a website? <laughs> That takes you to a I'm, sorry page. I we'll imagine see you later. that would be um, a good frowned gag. upon, right? <laughs> but I mean, think about it though. That's good. That's good feedback to have, you know. But would people say uh, that's encouraging somebody not to buy it? Well, but I if guess they how would you it, feel? How would you feel if you had to push a button like that? Yeah. If I had to push a button mm-hmm. like that, I don't know. I don't know. If I, if I think I was going to a website and that is exactly how I felt about it and the reason I was going to then just close the browser, close the page, yeah. I might push it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, certainly you'd like to know that information, wouldn't you? I would, but it's not about me. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, not you, the user. You, the... The owner. Yeah. It's, it's not about me, the owner. Yeah. It's yeah. about you, my end user. Yeah. If you yeah. can't afford a Bugatti Veyron today yeah i don't want you to feel bad about it so that when you can't afford it you don't want to buy one because you've got negative feelings with my brand yeah right Right. that makes total sense that's probably why you don't see that button (laughs) (laughs) but you know buttons on the way out in general is an interesting idea isn't it you know why you're why why are you buying today yeah Uh, mm mm-hmm well, usually you don't get a chance, right? I mean, you never get, get a chance. You get to that. I get to that point in that site, and I've had exactly the experience. I'm just trying to figure out the price of the product. Mm-hmm. The only way to do it is to put it in my cart, and they won't show me the pricing until I log in to their site. Right. And like, yeah. or bye bye. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's not a click on anything else. It's literally close this window. I'm gone. I'm somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I imagine enough people did that, they would start seeing. Their analytics yeah, drop off it, there. It has enough impact that they can actually measure yep. it and decide they're going to take action on mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and, and I'm, I can't stand the survey idea. Like, you know, would you like to take a survey and then get a whatever reward for it? If I, took, if I did every survey I was asked to do, I'd never get any work done. I know, right? <laughs> it's a lot of surveys. It, it is. G- generally, people don't come to your site to take surveys. Yeah. Right. And it's not an asset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the same feeling I get when you take a cab to out to dinner somewhere and then the cabbie gives you his card <laughs> but to you call him for the way back yeah. like why would I wait for you when there's a perfectly good cab right there when I'm ready to go there isn't always though yeah yeah there sometimes usually you really I mean, like the cabbie but I'm you know I, more often than not I get a, a, car, a card from a cabbie when I don't need a card you, you know it's, it's in his best interest for me to get the ride back with him but right Certainly, there's no. I have no incentive to call him. Mm-hmm. Well, and geez, I, I think I had this just happened on a Microsoft website where as soon as I hit the page I wanted to go to, mm-hmm. it blurs out the thing I'm trying to read to ask me to do a survey. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just I'm Goodbye. always going to say no. Always. You know, people you fill out the me. surveys. I don't know who they are, yeah, uh, really. but they do. Uh, I would caution people against doing that because it does frustrate a good portion yeah. of your You took away what surveys. I was looking at. Exactly. And also, so then who does fill it out? 
maybe not the people who you want to be filling mm-hmm. it out, who self-selects, right, for that group. And then what kind of data are you getting from right. that? You know, it's almost like, imagine going up to Starbucks, right? And right as you're about to give them the money to get your coffee, right? It's about your reach for your coffee. Somebody just gets in your way and just stands right there and yeah. says, read my ad. <laughs> and you're like, get up, and you move around and they move right in front of you. You know? Yeah. That's what if. There, there are some great videos of, you know, if the internet were real life. Yeah. And if people, <laughs> one with someone standing in line at, at a grocery store, just like ringing up their, yeah. their products. And then yeah. all of a sudden the cashier just stopped. Right. You know, like, wait, what happened? I don't know. And they're not talking. You know? Buffering. You don't know what's going on. And then, then there's an ad, you know, and it's really bizarre. The things that is that have become commonplace on the web that we would never tolerate in the real world ever that's that's, got to be a really good gauge would you do this to someone right actually Mm -hmm. like the zip code thing Mm -hmm. the the, i'm going to fill in your city and state zip code that seems like something you might actually do Mm -hmm. because it is wrapped in a i'm doing you a favor right Mm -hmm. until it doesn't work Mm -hmm. but you know there's a great technique i believe steven anderson came up with it and it's basically to think of your interface as a conversation. Mm-hmm. You're having a conversation and mm-hmm. he's got this, and I have one too now, it's a browser frame and you stand in front of it and you have a conversation with the browser, right? Wow. And you say, um, okay, I need a hotel room. Great. Where are you going to be? You know, so, right. you know, I need to know a city and state, for yeah. example, for the hotel. Uh, what days are you going to be there? Well, yeah. I don't know. Tell me which the best rates, but, that's, that's not how the back and forth works, right? right. That's how the back and forth yeah. works with you and me, but the system isn't that no, smart. Once you're talking about a transaction, it's because you want to do a transaction, not mm. you to explore anything. Right. What right. a great way to get a user story, though. Write it down is. a dialogue. Yeah. Write down a conversation that you want to have with the, with the product as right. a user. Approach it as if a, as a, a face-to-face sales it was process. A conversation. Mm-hmm. And then find a digital way to produce that that's same conversation. That's a gem right there. It's mm-hmm. a that's, great idea. Yeah. It's brilliant. Well, I wish it were mine, but... <laughs> I'll just share it with the world yeah. instead. Well, and just I mean, it's not just a sale; it's any workflow. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? whatever that may be—an internal app, any of those mm-hmm. things—that mm-hmm. just actually just body copy. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't want to read that. It's Sorry, you have to read it all. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this, this is you could storyboard this. You could make up mock-ups of the data and everything, and just work through it physically and mm-hmm. say, "Is this a delightful experience or mm-hmm. not?" What are some of your favorite books? UX books. Yeah. Any, yeah. <laughs> or any, really. Well, you know, books that are related to your business. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Let's not go down the sure. I've got to give a shout out to the, like, the whole Rosenfeld Media Library. Rosenfeld? Um, Rosenfeld, just to how it sounds. Um, they are based out of Brooklyn. They've got world-class authors from all across the field, you know, micro niches within the field. And the mm. books are very practical, very actionable. Mm. Um, the one I gave a talk this morning on forms. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. have one on web form design that is just, it's a few years old now, but it's still just a totally Bible. relevant. Yeah. That's interesting. And, um, I mean, they have a really big library now. So that's a great one okay. within the field. I would say the first book that anyone should read is called Don't Make Me Think. Don't Make Me Think. Yeah, that was kinda... What a great book. <laughs> it's a fabulous yeah. book. And yeah. it's even fun to read. You, yeah. don't, you don't have to have any technical knowledge. And you almost get it from the title. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. then you can ask yourself at any point when you're mm. designing or developing something, am I making my user think harder than I have to? Yeah. Which yeah. brings our phone number thing back yep. in. Am I making them think? Yes, I am. Oh, mm. maybe I should parse out those characters myself. Yeah. Yeah. You only have to figure it out once. You're making your customer figure it out every time. Exactly. 
That's not nice Tufty? at all. Tufty, I like. He pushes information density a little bit too much, I think. Whereas usually we probably, there are circumstances where that's really valuable. And mm -hmm. he gives a lot of good examples of when that is. Yeah. But um, more and more, I think what we need to do is take away some of the information and that people don't care about all right. of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I push a concept called less content, more strategy. Okay. A little play on content strategy, which is a new sort of subspecialty within UX. Right. And that is to take away a lot of that content. Nobody cares okay. about the specifics to the level that you care about them. Right. Nobody wants to see bios for everyone in your company down to middle management. Yeah. You know, that's nice for you, but... It's not really something your investors no, care about. It's a dead page. Right. And in the meantime, you have to create that content. You have to pay someone to take pictures maintain of all those it, people. Yeah. You have to mm -hmm. maintain it. You have to switch it out when people rotate within the company. Mm -hmm. You have to you know, figure out how to archive it. You have to architect it, put it into your information structure. Yep. You have to hold, hold it on your CMS. It's like and having all this forever. extra content costs you a lot of yeah, money. It's not so free. back before there was an internet, there was catalog, mail catalog sales. And I used to get this uh, catalog in the mail from a company called DAK. And they were great because you wouldn't just see an item. It was a whole, both, both sides of the page were dedicated to a product. And then the guy was personally talking to you about how they found this product, how, what, what's great about it, almost like a sales pitch. That's funny. But, you know, talking about the, the reasons why it's better than this and that and the other thing. And I'll just read these things and just be like... Wow, this is great. I got to have this. You know, this <laughs> what is kind of products? Were oh, they? everything from, um, you know, uh, like air ionizers to right. radios to, uh, you know, headphones That's to funny. electronics. A lot of electronics. And products. it worked for you. Yeah, it worked. And I kind of missed that. I mean, it's, I, I kind of like having a net more information when I want to see it about a product when I want to go deep, mm -hmm. you know. And that's the strategy part, right? Right. Is that but I don't want to have to read all that ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Right. If you go to, um, I imagine it still looks like this. I haven't been a while. Amazon's page for the Kindle. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like 15 screens high or yeah. something. It's a lot of content there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Huge pages of doom. Well, they seem to be doing okay, but they do. I guess they they're do. Amazon. In general, I recommend less content. Yes. Yeah, there are the real key is giving people what they need when they need it. Like you said, mm -hmm. uh, there's another sort of maxim: overview, details on demand, overview, zoom and filter, details on right. demand, mm -hmm. so that you get kind of a big picture, and then you can zoom in and say, okay, this looks a little more interesting, but I don't need to know every piece of metadata, and yeah. then until you do, right, and right. then you get to drill right. down really hard and look. Yeah, I've gotten the, you know, I'm shopping for monitors again, and... Always fun. Yeah, you know, th these things happen. It's just like, it has to have a 100 millimeter visa mount on it. You can never filter by that, mm -hmm. right? It's a subtle thing, but I, I have to dig through tech specs to say, does it have a visa mount on it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and then it's like, if you can't find it, is it because it doesn't have a mount? Or because they didn't document it, you just haven't looked in the right spot? Mm -hmm. You know, that's... And a motherboard, I want to know how many SATA connectors are on the motherboard. Right. Because I have a lot of hard drives. Yeah. You don't see that. You no. just see that it's SATA 6.0. SATA compatible. And so, yeah. yeah, a number of times I've actually had to look at the picture of the motherboard to count yeah. the stuff that matters to me on the right. board. Yeah. To actually figure it out. 
And then most of our users are like, what's a motherboard? <laughs> yeah, there's all this. I mean, I'm accepting of the fact that they, I'm not the customer. So, they, okay, yeah. you know, normal people aren't going to ask for this thing. But, boy, it takes up a lot of time. That's, that's a tough one. I mean, you do still see a lot of opportunities for faceted search that, right. that go wrong, right? Search is just one of those things. It's, you know, there's whole people dedicated just to that yep. specialty. The organizing data. Very challenging, yeah. yeah. Well, Danielle Cooley, thank you for sharing this hour with us. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yes, All right, indeed. great. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a